Hey church, welcome back to the midweek. It has been a minute, but a while ago we as pastors made a commitment to do a short series on um, the racial tensions and the large debate that is going on, not just nationally, but internationally. And it's been a minute, but we wanted to continue. And one of the things that we wanted to say is that we're in this for the long run. Right now, we we had looting last night again in Minneapolis. This is August 27th, and uh, there's a curfew for tonight. So this feels more real, but felt like right after George Floyd, we had this huge uptick of interest, uh, protesting, tons of activity, tons of content people were downloading and trying to understand how they can think. Um, almost every racial book was sold out online. It was just very hard to get anything. People were ex- excited, but inevitably, um, the news cycle marched on and um, fatigue has set in. Um, but but we, we want to understand, if we want to be good neighbors and we want to be um, the ch- a faithful church in this area, we want to speak wisely and courageously and faithfully in this situation. It's not going away. Kenosha is burning right now, and uh, things, things are going to get worse before they get better in the short term. And so we want to continue to try to shepherd you, church, with resources and some clarity on common issues that are bringing confusion and division, and, um, and we want to serve you in this way. So the topic for today is redlining, and I, um, we, well, one thing that's really important as we frame it, um, Ross has read the book, The Color of the Law. Um, I've read big portions of it, but he read through it straight through recently by Richard Richard Rothstein, Rothstein, an Ivy League professor. Yep. And um, and what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what happened in the past, how it still affects the present, and different thoughts of go- moving forward. And we're not none of us are uh, sociologists, and so we're 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 working outside of our uh, area of tr- of formal training. But we um, are trying our best to to think through these matters so that we can um, live as Christ has called us to. Um, Pastor Daniel's here too, going to be chiming in as well, and we're just trying to faithfully serve you in this time. So, um, Ross, to start off, how would we define redlining? What is this term that's been used all the time, people throw it out? Sure, redlining is the practice of banks and and loan-making institutions dividing up neighborhoods based off of the desirability to, to give them a loan. The higher class the neighborhood the more economic opportunity in the neighborhood, the more likely you are to get a loan to build a new home, to rebuild a, an existing home, to basically get the capital that you need to be able to engage in new construction. Now, as the quality of a neighborhood decreases, um, its rating by the government uh, would also decrease. And so that loans would be hardest to get in the most economically depressed areas. So, um, and at this time, um, and still today, those areas were inhabited by minority and mainly black residents. And so this would serve to entrap and keep cycles of poverty in these places by preventing new home construction, by preventing repairs, by preventing all sorts of economic activity that would be made available in more wealthy, more affluent neighborhoods. Um, the, the argument was that Oh, it's it's we cannot put loans in these places because we're less likely to get paid back. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, that's probably not the whole explanation. That isn't the whole explanation. Just the history of our country and just the leaders shows that there was racial discrimination and bias 
that was um, a part of these policies that affected redlining. Um, and, and yeah, I think we're going to talk about how some of these things still have an impact on America today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Daniel is going to chime in and, and just talk about the different colors that um, were, um, I guess, classifying different sections and what they represented. And I would love to hear your, like Ross, what Ross said was, was very detailed. I'm curious, um, Daniel, how would you simplify it for the average listener too? Okay. Your, your take on it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think this would be interesting. Well, um, I, I'll, I'll do two things. I'll just yeah, jump on this color, the color thing and then, then the red lining, how I would define it. Um, there, was a, there was an association that came together um, that they were, they were trying, that basically put, put this, this map, they set up this map and put the colors, they organized you know, the city based on uh, desirability. Uh, when are we talking? So what, what do we, I, we I just saw that, but I can't remember. It's like 1934. Yeah, 30s, 40s, 50s. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And so, you know, these these banks were basically looking at these areas, which were, um, yeah, deemed more or less desirable uh, based on, you know, who was living there in part. That was a big part, whether it was business people or people of color or, or foreigners, you know, that those details would affect how they would grade those areas. So just quickly, the, the green level is the most desirable. Oftentimes you have business people living there. Uh, the blue was the, the next step, and there were, there were higher class uh, white folks typically there. Yellow was a kind of a working class people, and often oftentimes... Uh, they deemed this area as a, uh, an area that was declining in, in desirability. And then there was the, the red uh, area, which that's where you get the name redlining. Yeah, and, the, and these areas um, oftentimes were made up of a lot of foreigners and minorities. And, and, and as Ross said, and I'll just jump kind of into the, my, my own uh, definition of redlining, is these areas, redlining means that these areas just simply had a harder time uh, getting out of the, the impoverished situations that they want. Even if they wanted to buy a home and were capable of buying a home yep. in another place, they, if they were from those areas, they often couldn't get a loan from a bank. Uh, and it's hard to say whether that was specifically racially charged or not, but, but the, all of this you know, all the facts that people are looking at is saying like, these areas, if you lived in these areas and if you were uh, a minority, you oftentimes couldn't get out of that area, which meant you were just caught in a cycle of poverty uh, and, and just didn't have the opportunities. So I don't, does that yeah. <laughs> help? So that, that's how awesome. simple. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as we, before we jump into some more of the details from the color of the law, as we have your interest, hopefully, at this point we still do, the reason why this is important, as Ross alluded, is that if you look at the maps from back in the 1930s of how they broke up the cities, and you look at who lived where, and then you put superimposed over that map, a map of today, they're very similar. There hasn't been much change. You know, some areas are still like 90% the same or 70 something percent. So that happened around the 30s. So we're talking 90 years, almost 100 years. And we have very similar 
racially made up neighborhoods and not just racially or ethnically made up neighborhoods that are similar, the poverty levels are almost identical. Mm -hmm. And that is significant for understanding. Now, where you go with the conclusions of why that matters and how that's the case still today is, is a really big deal. And we're not getting to all those details, but to make that observation is an empirical fact. Yeah. That's important for us to say. Now, why, again, there's going to be lots of debate. And, but, but that's important for all of us to know that the, the, the kind of saying on the, the wrong side of the tracks, mm-hmm. that comes from this kind of reality. Yeah. Yes. And, and for many cities, that's still the reality. In us in Minneapolis, it is many ways similar now, there, we also will talk about gentrification later a little bit, um, and we are in the top five most gentrified cities, so let's talk about that later. But, Ross, can you go over some of the high points of the color law? What, what was maybe something that surprised you as someone who is well-informed in a lot of these matters? Like, what shocked you or, you know? Yeah, I think, I think what surprised me um, as I read this book, which is very comprehensive, uh, I would say too comprehensive. There was so much information in it. It was hard. Do you recommend it? Um, you know, I don't for that reason. Okay. I don't recommend it um, just due to the utter density of it. I love how thorough and exhaustive he is, but it's quite frankly exhausting to read. And I feel like I have a lot of education and I'm struggling to get my mind around exactly yeah, what he's talking yeah. about in yeah. this book. Um, but, but as I read it, a couple things surprised me. One was that we seem to talk about redlining almost exclusively as if that's the problem. But it, I feel like that's just a small little piece. I was I was shocked at how explicitly, I guess racist is the only word to put it, our government officials were, especially in the 20th century, the first half of the 20th century with how we handled housing issues. Hmm. What also surprised me was how prevalent it was in every region of the country. Hmm. I tended to, to think that a lot of these issues would have been more focused in southern states where racism was a bigger problem. Reasonable, yeah. And um, one thing he says is uh, racial segregation and housing was not merely a project of southerners and former slaveholding confederacy. It was a nationwide project of the federal government in the 20th century designed and implemented by, and then this is also surprising, it's most liberal leaders. You know, the most liberal people in that era being the ones who hmm. were, were the ones who advanced these policies. Um, yeah, I mean, I could get in and talk to them about a little more. Yeah, I'm curious about that, you know, because back to one of the, the things that is on the national platform that's most debated is are policies creating inequality unintentionally or are they purposely creating inequality? Yes. Right? And what you just said, that first thing that you were shocked by is that there was actually very much racially or racist motiva- motivations behind some of these policies. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you get into that? I can. I can. Um, quite frankly, yeah, it's just, it was clear back then that the government, the, the leaders, local and federal leaders were against integrated housing. Mm-hmm. Where he starts first is in San Francisco. He starts in California yeah, yeah. and says, hey, this is one of the most progressive places in the country. And so if it happens here, it can happen anywhere. Yeah. And just shares the example of this Ford plant that builds in the San Jose Valley. And what they're trying to do is, is build uh, housing for the new 1,400 workers. Most of them are white, there's a few of them that are black. The plan is to build housing for all the workers so that they can work at the plant. Well, the city council passes an ordinance, which is where you'll see a lot of these things happen, which only allows 
for certain types of housing units funded by the Federal Housing Administration. And the Federal Housing Administration has a policy that it will only give loans to white people. Mm. So the federal government will guarantee, only guarantee loans, which means that guaranteed means that if you default on it, they'll still pay the, they'll still cover it. And so it drives down the interest rate and allows a poor person to get a loan. Yeah. And the Federal Housing Administration says, hey, guess what? If you're not, if you're not white, you're not getting a guaranteed loan. Mm. And then so, so the black workers at this factory end up buying a van and having to drive an hour each day to work and from work and do it for their entire career. Two hours on the road every day yeah. for their whole, the rest of their working lives because because of this this policy. Kind of zooms out. Start. He talks a lot about how a lot of these things started during Woodrow Wilson's era as presidency. Moves into FDR era of presidency, and talks about the uh, beginning of government housing, and government housing was actually something that led to a whole lot of segregation in different neighborhoods. So we think of government housing today as housing for the poor and housing for minorities, but that's not how it started out. It started out as housing for white people. Mm. There was a lot of veterans coming back from the wars. There was a huge housing shortage. We were in the midst of the depression. And one of the things FDR did was he started to build housing projects to house veterans and to house people. And I don't know how to put it, but Franklin Delano Roosevelt had racist motivations in how he wanted to do this. And these housing developments were discrim were segregated and were largely in favor of you know more of them were made for white families and white white people which is fascinating because FDR has a very positive reputation he does the new deal is favorable by many modern liberals right I it hear, is i hear very positive things yeah and a big part of the new deal was constructing these segregated and preferential white housing developments it was a very mm racist thing that is is still having effects today um after fdr the next president was truman who also was in the same same political alignment and they were passing a new bill that would um that would create uh integrated or, or more federal housing and there was a movement by the republicans at that time to make it so in order for the bill to pass it would have to have integrated housing. Hmm. Now, the author of this book doesn't think they actually weren't racist. They were just trying to defeat the bill because they knew it would lose Southern Democrat support if it did that. I don't know. That's up. I, I can. It's up to you to judge. And one thing I found fascinating is our own Minnesotan Senator Hubert Humphrey, after whom our airport is named, was a leader in defeating that amendment to the bill hmm. and getting the bill passed that maintained segregated government housing being constructed here in the north. Humphrey was a Republican though, right? He was a Democrat. I'm just kidding. Yeah. He was a Democrat. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's right. Just like any famous politician from Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. So. And the reason why we poke fun at that, the way, the reason why I did that, I don't know if that's helpful. Sorry if that offends anyone who listens. It's just because it's important for us to know that we're so such in a polarized um atmosphere right now and the, the the narrative that we're fed is that democrats love the poor and care about racial in, injustice and, and and care about these reality matters um and republicans hate black people and they don't care about these things and they just want money right and there's there are reasons why people believe that there's certain truths that that we can say that and yet 
it, it, it's it's unfairly creating these false dichotomies and these polarizations that if you just even look at the history of uh, of even Minnesota, blue for how many years? 50 more years? More than that. Long, yeah. And yet we have, you know, all of these racial injustices. So so just reject the narrative, family, that uh, if, if you vote blue, you that means that you're voting for the good of black people. Because people have done that for over six decades or longer in Minnesota, and we have one of the one of the worst ra- numbers when it comes to racial disparities in the country. That's right. So you, we just got to reject that polarization. I just I, I will just share this. I remember in high school when we, we did a mock uh, voting for presidents for and it was Kerry versus Bush, and this was in Georgia. And I remember one of my friends, black black friends, telling other people, "Hey, make sure you vote for Kerry. Kerry's for black people." And it's just that kind of mindset that, like, if you vote for blue, it's for black people. You vote for red, it's for whatever, free markets or smaller government, which isn't even true. Most red have big government. Anyway, so it's like these are just false narratives that we want to reject. That's why I'm highlighting that. That's a good Ho- word. Hopefully that was, <laughs> that was a good word. W- worth a minute. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's good. Um, Woodrow Wilson comes up a lot in this book as the one who introduced segregation into the federal government. Um, also, uh, Ivy League uh, Democrat and... Yeah, just talked about how prior to his administration, there were several people of color and black people who had ascended to high places in our federal government and high positions of authority until he passed a policy that no black person could oversee a white person. So they all, everyone got demoted. Wow. Put up sheets in between black and white areas and built new bathrooms in the basement for black people. Jeez. So they had to go downstairs. And so, oh my goodness. So just like, just the amazing damage that his presidency brought to some of the progress that had been made is something that stood out to me in this book. Um, yeah, so another another big thing that happens in this, that he points out in this book, is that it's not only the federal government that was guilty of a lot of these things. It was private homeowners associations, mm-hmm. which really victimized people of color. Mm-hmm. So one thing they would do would be that um, you we have these associations today where, you know, you move in and you got to, like, mow your lawn and not put up certain signs in front of your yard and stuff. Mm-hmm. One of, the, one of the clauses in a lot of these homeowner agreements were that you could not sell your house to a person of color. Wow. And, wow. and some people broke it and did. And the, the buyers, the, the black buyers, would get evicted from the homes. Hmm. The, and it, Wait, so you're telling me someone would be like, okay, I want to buy this house. I'm like, all right, if, if you want to buy in this association, you got to know that you can't ever sell it to a black person? Yeah. Those you got to sign. Yeah, you'd have to sign to get in. Wow. And then when people broke the thing and sold to black people, black people would actually get evicted from the home they had bought over these housing covenants. So there, there were these very wicked, sinister things. And wow. And one, um, one, it was pre- it was based off of a lie that if black people lived in your neighborhood, housing values would drop. Mm-hmm. That that's just this lie that that was just perpetuated. That yeah. that if you have a racially integrated neighborhood, your property values will drop. Which is not the case. Actually, the research shows it would go up when when they became integrated neighborhoods because now you have more people who can live in this neighborhood and demand mm-hmm. for the house goes up. No. But, and this this was actually probably one of the most, just the things that hit me the hardest is one of the sickest things in the book. Mm-hmm. Speculators and different um, capital investors would come into these neighborhoods as soon as a black family moved in the neighborhood and tell all the white families your property values are about to drop. You need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And they would buy all the houses in the neighborhood for like 50% value. And then, since black people desperately needed housing in this era, 
they would come and pay over market value for the house to these mm. to these people who had lied to all the other families and got them to sell their homes. Mm. That's disgusting. Yeah. And so um, that was that was another way that these neighborhoods were segregated is that these these I guess charlatans would come in and dis- whenever a neighborhood was beginning to integrate, they would profit off of the fear. They'd be fear mongers who profit off of the fear and resegregate the neighborhoods. Yeah. Wow. So. Um, Sounds like those poli- those those tactics still work today in pol- in politics. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and so and so it was a combination between public and private mm. prejudice um, working together to segregate right. American neighborhoods. And it's hard. And and during, throughout this period, there's different Supreme Court decisions that are making certain things illegal and so it's always changing it's always changing form how it's happening sure. different different ways of doing the homeowner covenants different ways of right. regulating loans but um i mean up until like 70s or 80s or so th- there there are laws on the books that allow this discriminatory behavior yeah and um and there's no denying that it has profoundly shaped the residential maps of every major city Yep. Um, one other thing is zoning, zoning ordinances. So the city, city, local governments and cities would use zoning ordinances to discriminate. Baltimore started these in 1910. Baltimore, mm-hmm. one of the most mm-hmm. racially segregated and, and um, hurting cities, the um, city that Frederick Douglass spent a lot of his time in. Mm-hmm. And um, wow. so just, just about 60 years after Frederick Douglass was a resident in Baltimore and was able to actually have a lot more freedom there than he had in the South. Um, still even there, 1910, um, they start um, passing ordinances that um, will not allow black people to buy homes in neighborhoods where the majority of the residents are white. Mm. So you go to a block, you count up the residents, if there's more white than black, and you're black, you can't buy a house on that block. Wow. And so that was legal until the Supreme Court struck it down. And so you had some white neighborhoods and some black neighborhoods zoned that way. And this is another thing that especially grieved me, was that when they did the ordinances that way, so you'd have white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods, they would only allow taverns, liquor stores, dirty factories, oh my brothels, and guess which neighborhoods they could be in? Only the, only the black neighborhoods. Come on. And so then the white neighborhoods would not, none of those things would be zoned and allowed in the white neighborhoods, but only in the black and African American neighborhoods. And you can still see that today. Like research will show that if you're black, you're more likely to live near some more of these vices or dirty things in the neighborhood. Oh. So a lot of this was, yeah, pre-plotted, planned. Oh, that hurts. By, um, by some very, very uh, wicked people who had power, especially in the first half of the 20th century. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, um, I, had a, I had a more general idea of a lot of this history, but really gained more of a specific understanding of some of the really, really despicable things that happened in our past. As I read this book. Wow. Wow. That's heavy. Yeah. That leads us to today, right? Yeah. And and the again, we, we talked about cycles of, of poverty. It started way back when this is one of the main issues that, that has led to our current situation. And one of the things that people are, are calling out and pointing back to. Um, what about so so that's that's the thing right now redlining we're bringing this up because this is an important term that you're going to be mm-hmm. going to be hearing in this discussion. And I wonder if people should just call it housing segregation. I feel like okay. redlining is a confusing Too term. Confusing. Yeah, it's a very like 
I mean, yeah. you go to your average person on the street and ask what redlining is, they might be able to tell you. Yeah. But everyone knows what housing segregation is. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and redlining limits it to culpability is limited to the government. Well, more the lending institutions, yeah. which the government was involved with. Right, right, right. But right, right, um, right. it's specifically a criticism of the lending institutions where there's it was so much more than just the banks and the lending. It's it was the local governments. It was the housing covenants. It was the federal government under Woodrow Wilson and FDR and Truman especially. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so. It was, Charlatans that you mentioned. Yeah, that's in. right. That's well, right. What about what about now? Like, what are, uh, what are people presenting as solutions? Uh, is that even something we want to? Try to dive into it a little bit here. <laughs> like, what, what, how should we be thinking about this, or is this just something for us to understand? And, I think know. one thing that's important. This isn't a solution, but it does help bring the conversation towards a healthier area, because there's there's a sizable portion of the country that says there's no such thing as um, systematic racism or structural racism. Mm-hmm. Depending on how you define that, as we've covered in other podcasts. We can affirm that or not affirm that, right? If we say that um, uh, all racial inequality is racist, is racism, systematic racism, we can affirm that there are buttloads of that everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Um, but that's part of the debate is what terminology you're using and why, what you mean by that. But putting that to the side, there's a, a large portion of people who just deny that this still affects people today. Yeah. And what they do is they view issues within a, a people group, so let's just say specifically African Americans, as pr- predominantly or only through the lens of merit and work ethic, personal choice, personal choice and culture, right? Yeah. right? All this stuff is like, oh, well, look, I get, you know, like maybe your life was different, but 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 you just didn't choose the things that I chose, right? Like, and we 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 so think that we live in vacuums. As if like we all come with a blank slate and that entire group of people just chose poorly all the time and white people chose well. And when you think about this background of just what, what Ross just delved into, you can imagine how that has a multi-generational trickle effect mm-hmm. and perpetuates cycles of, of vices, like the areas that had, you know, uh, um, the, the zoning of... Uh, ordinance the blessings i guess even yeah. to have those you know the, the taverns and the, the the brothels and so forth um how that totally wrecks families mm-hmm. and how when the family's wrecked up there, there's just like just millions of issues that spiral from that that almost also sociologists on every part of the political spectrum would agree right that's just one area right yeah mm-hmm. and uh, and then the other areas of like the fact that you have um generational wealth and how certain people they um had the same work ethic as others but they had opportunity and that makes all the difference right you look at outliers by malcolm gladwell and you see everyone who was successful all of them had opportunities even though they had the same work ethic as other people and opportunities can come from housing and from you know from loans and all those realities right yes almost no one buys a house because they have all the money, it's it's we're saying you're going to get this money because we believe you're good for it eventually, right? Yeah. And that's an opportunity you're given based off of your circumstances, your credit score, maybe your ethnicity. Um, now less than before, but that that affects. And I just feel like I hear from a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ, even who, especially majority culture, who just deny that any of this has effects today. Yes. And if you can affirm that it affects. Today, that will help immensely going forward. You don't have to say that you are 
guilty of all racial, the past of all racists ever of all time in all places. You don't need to have to go there. But if you just affirm that reality, I think that's going to take a huge step towards healing uh, and meeting our brothers and sisters, in, uh, black brothers and sisters, um, who, who are hurting from that. Yeah. Um, that. That's one point that I want yeah. to Yeah, that's good. I mean, I think you can look at the maps from where things were 50 years ago and today, and there's no denying that yes. these things have affected our present today. Mm-hmm. I think part of the breakdown happens when people make the past determinative uh-huh. or fatalistic. Yeah. Like, like this is the one, re- or reductionist, like, like this is the one thing that has determined every outcome we're seeing today. Right, right, right. I think that's also yeah. the wrong conclusion. I think there's a balanced view where you recognize that there's a lot of different factors that have influenced the present, and this is one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. But one thing that I think is helpful in this is not merely, right, we talked about, uh, Neil Shebney talked about looking at policies through several lenses. Is it something that's causing um, racial inequality unintentionally or intentionally and, and so forth? Like, parsing it down, it's important for us to recognize, no, that this was a um, concerted effort, evil effort by certain men, mm-hmm. and people were complicit in creating this situation. Yes. Rather than, oh, it just happened to be that way, people were incompetent, they just made policies that they didn't realize the ramifications. It was, they were, there were certain people who purposely wanted to disadvantage and cripple and advantage their, you know, the majority culture. That's right. I think that's important to yeah. affirm. Yes. Um, yeah. So we, uh, we want to get our heads around these things so that we can um, not be ignorant in how we, how we discuss them. We want to be uh, sympathetic uh, of, in these discussions. And um, I don't know. I mean, if you guys have other, I think we should be wrapping this up in, yep. a, in a moment here. But um, I think that's one of the most important things right in this moment that we need to uh, we, we need to be able to have uh, open ears listening carefully uh, d- not speaking ignorantly you know with uh, yeah there's, there's again we've, we've said it multiple times that there's so much polarization there's there's so much that we can say for or against uh, each each argument and we just want to be careful and I just want us as a church I think uh, my my care right now is as we you know see these new things coming out with the shooting of, of Jacob Blake and and uh, all these new details and I'm sure there'll be more that we we're careful to weigh the facts listen carefully um, and be prayerful and let our speech be seasoned with salt as Scripture uh, ch- charges us so we know how to give an answer to everybody um, so I think again th- these are the the reasons we're coming after these, trying to define these things, uh, so we can be we can be well spoken, careful. Yeah, but I think we do have to talk about just possible solutions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do yeah. it. You want to? You want to go there? Okay. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, one one thing I read this by Kevin DeYoung the other day was really good. Is a more left leaning, and now he says in black authors he reads who are more left leaning, they tend to talk about the causes of mm-hmm. inequality, and more conservative. Uh, authors, especially black ones, that he reads talk about more of the solutions to the problems we're facing right now. Right, right. And I would say that this book, not necessarily written by a black person, but still by a left-leaning person, heavily favors explaining why things are today mm-hmm. and has a pretty not impressive chapter about how to move forward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, yeah. and I think, and this is where I think the discussion often breaks down, that if, if we engineered our way into this, we need to find a way to engineer our way out of it, mm. as if we can just come up with some sort of 
magic uh, policy that sort of fixes the situation we're in, mm-hmm. um, where he seems to kind of advocate for some of that, like different kinds of zoning laws that allow for more kinds of multi-purpose units in different neighborhoods and things like that, as, as if that will fix the segregation in neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. One thing he pointed out in this book that I think contradicts his solution is he talks about reverse redlining. <laughs> reverse redlining is something our government tried to do in the 90s and 2000s, which is where you lower the requirements for a house loan, especially for minority people. The idea is to get minorities more house loans Mm -hmm. with the concept that if you can just get someone a better home, it will fix the cycle of poverty. Now, so what happened was you, you you lowered the requirements for house loan and put a lot of people, minorities, into homes that ultimately, sadly, they were not in a financial position to afford. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we had the financial crisis of 2008 right. and foreclosures. And guess who lost out the most in that? Mm-hmm. It wasn't the middle class. It, it was, was the, the lower. It was the lo- yeah. And it wasn't the banks. They yeah. got bailed yeah. out. They had, their, yeah. they had their friends in office to bail them out. Yeah. It was the poorest people who got evicted from their homes that they had tried to build their new lives in. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would just say be weary, be leery, and watchful of anyone who thinks that we can engineer use our massive federal government to engineer a solution to the problem that the federal government engineered in the first place. Yeah. It's it's like fighting fire with fire mm-hmm. is what it kind of turns out to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one your, what your point just made is you said earlier about how we can't be reductionistic. Uh-huh. I'm merely just saying this will say, solve things. Yes. And what you just shared, I want to propose that that wasn't a failure in and itself if it, but but it is a failure if it's done in isolation outside of all the other components that are important to address to bring reverse property. Yeah, it, it could have been. It could have been tor- terrible. Period. Mm-hmm. But I, I would I would hope to believe that there is so many different things that were neglected, and, and and that comes back a lot again to our worldview, especially in the West. It's materialistic, right? So when we look at issues, especially poverty, we think you're you don't have money, you don't have things. Okay, well, then we need to give you money and things. Yes. Uh-huh. And therefore, you're going to then be right. And, and the beautiful thing about Fickard and Corbett's book, When Helping Hurts, is that they talk about we have a upward brokenness with God, a um, brokenness um, with people, a brokenness with creation, and brokenness with self. Mm-hmm. And you need that holistic uh, healing and reconciliation to bring someone out of a state of poverty and healing. Yeah. Yes, and yet what we do, especially when we think of government solutions, we just say, "Hey, they just need more money." Right? They're poor. Hey, there's a one percent. They just need the, the billionaires need to just empty their bank accounts or take less salary, and everyone needs to get more money, and that will solve it. And again, that could help, but if it's not addressing our ultimate need of reconciliation with God mm-hmm. and others and ourselves and creation, it's, it's going to be ultimately short-sighted. And so, Christians, maybe this is one way we can close: is that we got to remember that. The economic side, the materialistic side, is just one component that ultimately fails short of the greatest need of reconciliation with God yes. and others and self. Yeah. Um, and one, one, one thing that, that, one study that really strikes me and I think sheds a lot of light into this, I, I do think that one of the things in the book, When Helping Hurts, points out is that monetary wealth and prosperity is it comes downstream from relationships and, and health and individual health and health relationships with employers, family, friends. Um, so the Brookings Institute did a study right. 
left-leaning institute, and they found that there are three things anyone across the political spectrum needs to do to go to the middle class from, from the lower class. Home ownership is not one of them. I want home ownership to be available to more people, but it seems to be more of a consequence mm. of acquiring wealth than a cause of it. Yeah. So what, what the Brookings Institute found is that anyone of any racial descent, gender, anything, no, no, any possible variable who finishes high school, gets and maintains a full-time job, and waits until 21 to be married and have children, there is a vast, vast probability that you will ascend within a reasonable time from the lower class to the middle class. And so what this book I thought failed to do was cite any sort of sociological evidence that his programs would do anything to alleviate the plight of the poor. Right. Where there is strong sociological evidence that if you can kind of, if you can embrace some of these basic fundamental habits of health, you can get out of a poor neighborhood. And so, I mean, as just I'm thinking about it, the solution, if I had a personal relationship with someone who's trying to move to a nicer neighborhood, mm -hmm. in addition to the relationship with God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus on these things because sociological evidence shows that these are gonna help them mm -hmm. succeed and prosper and maybe one day get that house that they can right. get to give to their kids. And so, um, yeah, I, just, I thought his research was so compelling, so thorough, but his solutions were just not as compelling to me. I and would, the devil's advocate, I would say someone who has a steady home life would be in a better situation to finish school. Yes, I was going to say the right, same. Right. Yeah, there's other complex situations. What you said is right, but there's other yeah. things that would They hinder. feed each other. Yeah, absolutely. But the, and I, amen, but the problem with making that point is you don't, need, you don't need a home in order to have any of these things. So, so yeah. someone home, without home life, home life, home, not home, home ownership. ownership. Yes. Okay. So you're talking about yep. father in the home, right? Yes. Things like that. Yeah, like, uh, I, but I would say not having to move around all the time yeah, because you have a steady home life or even you own a home. If you own a home, you're going to have a steadier home life in the, when it yeah. comes to train, not being able to move all the time, yeah. right? Because you're constantly needing a new lease, sure. right? Which we know that personally with people who we've walked with right yes and so that does affect it it's not the only effect, uh, uh, influencer but it is a, an influencer it is an influencer but if it was such a major influencer it defeats the study home ownership would be one of the criteria. sure and it's not it's yeah. not one of the criteria that you need to advance right from right. the lower I guess the argument would be what makes it more likely for you to do those three things finish high school yeah. not get married and have kids at 21 what was the third one um, have, yeah, a full -time have a full-time job. I, I would say that people who come from a steady home, well, yeah. So again, they're 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 all interconnected. Yeah. And certain ones should be weighted more. And I think our issue today is that we weigh merely home ownership and money as the highest thing. So yeah. especially with uh, what's what's the the park, Powderhorn Park, mm -hmm. right? There's all these demonstrations saying, hey, get these people housing. How can mm -hmm. how can you move them when they have nowhere to go? Yeah. As if if you just got them houses, then everything will be okay, right? right yeah. Just overly simplistic, and the Bible is so much more robust yeah. in its answers and solutions, and that's why the beauty of the new heavens and new earth is it's going to be total. It's going to yeah. bring total reconciliation in every area. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. can hope in that. Each each solution that we provide comes with uh, other topics that mm -hmm. we should probably go after right, right. in this series. You know, there, there's complexity. I hope you hear that. There's complexity that's in all right. these things. These are the redlining, homeownership, 
situation is is one detail yes. in, in the whole picture. So um, we have we have a long way to go, and uh, we will hope to to get another podcast out here soon in this series. Uh, thanks for for your energy, brothers, and thanks for listening. Sure. Thanks for tuning in.